bit. I love me some Grover. You know, one of the many things that Sesame Street tried to teach us of, among alph alphabet and numbers was uh, our spatial presence. So I don't know if you guys seen that. We were talking about, I think that's a classic, classic bit just because it's trying to tell kids, you know, there is a distinct difference in, uh, in objects depending upon uh, how far away you are from them. And I think that's one of the interesting things about life, right, is that distance actually means something, whether something is near or far. Um, put up some pictures up here of rear view mirrors, and I, I don't see it as much anymore, but there used to be, you know, back in the maybe 80s, 90s, that small imprint on your rear view mirror that said objects in the mirror are closer than they appear, which is interesting because, you know, you had this vital part of your automobile that had to tell you this, which I don't know if you were supposed to read that while you were driving at 70 miles an hour, or if you were supposed to note that beforehand, but why do we put those mirrors that are uh, convex on an automobile? It's so that it is supposed to uh, illuminate and, sh and give view to your blind spots, right? The things that Normally you would see in real life, but in real life, but you don't have the opportunity to do so. I so wanted to begin this, you know, I went for Grover instead of the riff. I was going to break down uh, Meatloaf, the performer from the 1970s, 80s, and then up to the 90s, who wrote an entire song entitled Objects in the Rear View Mirror Are Closer Than They Are. Like, he actually has a song that I invite you to download it in your iTunes this afternoon, just listen to that. Maybe that would have been a better introduction to this instead of Grover showing us near and far. But the issue is this morning, as we're in the book of Colossians, and as a church we've been studying through this uh, for the past few weeks, we're in Colossians chapter 3 right now. I'm going to assume it's right or bound in your blue Bible, page 833. Is that maybe close? I think I'm in the right. If it's not 833, it's 834. We've been talking uh, or studying through this book of the Bible, and this was a book written by the Apostle Paul who lived after Jesus. And the main thing that Paul was trying to accomplish through this was to instruct the church in this small town in modern-day Turkey, instruct them on how they needed to hold fast to Christianity and beware of these other philosophies and religions that sounded a lot like Christianity but were not actually so. And what Paul is trying to do is to illuminate the, you know, the periphery of the church in Colossus and try to get them to see things differently, to understand that uh, Jesus does win in the end, and for all the reasons that he wins, we've, we've studied this for, for weeks in chapters 1, 2, and here now in chapter 3, as we get today, we're, gonna, we're going to see a little bit about the God who is both near and far. So Brooklyn's going to read for us this morning. Brooklyn, we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, if we can have that read aloud for us. Thank you so much. Okay. Is this on? Okay. Yes, we got you. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul picks up on chapter 3, where he actually left off in chapter 2, and that is our relationship with Jesus. When we choose to follow Jesus, what does that look like? Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, this very powerful verse, is that when you are buried with Jesus in baptism, 
You are also raised through him through your faith in the working of God. Why baptism is such a powerful metaphor in the church is because it emulates the experience of Jesus. As somebody enters into the water, they are buried, and as they emerge from the, bo- from the water, they are resurrected. And this is this powerful metaphor of transformation that happens. And what Paul wants to show then is what happens in baptism is that we no longer stay separate, but live lives that are intertwined with Jesus. Been, I was thinking about this word a lot this week, the concept to intertwine, and you can even see in the etymology of this word, right? Like that, that, that to intertwine, uh, one of the root words is twine, which is thread. And what happens when you uh, have something uh, made of many different materials that are intertwined as one is it makes something completely new. And we see this because string be, uh, becomes rugs or sometimes... Um, uh, uh, pieces of wood can be intertwined to form a basket. Or what's interesting is that roots themselves can intertwine to add stability to powerful trees. So what Paul is trying to say here is that when we decide to follow Jesus, our lives change because they are woven into the very life of Jesus himself. And therefore, we are privy to the experiences that Jesus himself had. So this intertwining starts with what we talked about In baptism, right? Jesus was killed, yet when we are baptized, it's as if we died with Jesus himself. As we are raised with him from the waters, it is just as if our very being is interwoven with Jesus so that we resurrect with him. And this is where Paul then takes it when we get to chapter 3. Because notice at the beginning of this is that then, if you've been raised with Christ, if you have been baptized, if you've decided to follow Jesus, then you are raised with him, and you should then not just think about the here and now, because Jesus now sits in heaven at the very right hand of God, so as our lives are intertwined with him, we should set our mind on heavenly things, that we should be like Jesus and see things from an eternal perspective. And this is the template for which you and I need to live lives. We need to live our lives as if they're intertwined with Christ himself. Now let's take this metaphor a little further, this intertwining. And what I would challenge you to do right now is to, and and again, I'm sorry that it's hot in here, friends, but this is a 140-year-old building, and it's on a boiler system. And I don't know if you know anything about boiler systems, but boiler systems only work one of each way. It's not like you're regular heater at home, you know, your, 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 your thermostat, where you can switch on air conditioning to cool however you feel about it. No, when you switch a boiler switch, that's it. So it's November, you'll like it when it's 30 degrees next week and it's nice and toasty in here, amen? Okay, so we're all hot. I'm prefacing that in the midst of this, just say, look, I'm sweating it up a storm right here too. We will live in a little bit of miserableness for Jesus. Now, I preface this by saying, look at your sleeve, and some of you are short-sleeving it today, so if you can't look at your sleeve, maybe look at the the shirt tail, and then if your shirt's tucked in, you're just out of luck, you're just too professional for us. But I don't know if you think about this, when you put on your garment today, you're like, I will put on that blouse, or that shirt, or that sweater, if you're, you know, again, in the choices haunting you right now. But when you think about that, you think about it as a singular garment, but the reality is that you can actually see that your garment is comprised of many, many, many small strings that are interwoven, intertwined, to form a brand new garment. 
and we don't necessarily pay attention to the thousands of threads that are woven together that keeps us from being naked, right? So in a way, we're wearing what we wear, but really what we're wearing are all these strings together. Now think of yourself then as being in Jesus as one of these single, solitary strings in your outfit, in your shirt. Just think about how minuscule that is. When you look at the rest of the outfit then, if you're just a single one of these strings, unless it goes, you know, unless it frays and you have to cut that sucker off, it, it, it is relatively autonomous, correct? You don't pay notice to a singular string. And this is what Paul is saying here in verse 3, that when you are intertwined with Christ, as you died, your life is now hidden in Jesus. Now, I don't know how we feel about that today. The idea that my life is hidden, because in this era of social media and the idea that I am special and I want people to know who I am, the concept of hiddenness can be more traumatizing than anything else that you could experience, right? Most of us don't want to be hidden, but recognize this, is that one of the promises of being a follower of Jesus is that your life is actually hidden until verse 4, when Christ, who's your life, appears, you appear with him in glory. That is to say, when Jesus comes back, that hiddenness is finally revealed. So you will reveal it as well. As much as Jesus will come back someday, your entire being will be revealed and no longer be hidden. What is the benefit then of their being hidden? It's that we get to live our spiritual existences underground. Again, this is one of the key things about being a follower of Jesus, and we talk about this all the time, is that really, you know, you, you'll hear many times that Christians are hypocrites. Yes, we are the best hypocrites because we're hypocrites with coverage. And this is the thing, is that it's not then that our lives need to be so better than everybody else that it's clear to all who see, right? It's this idea that actually we are free to fail in under the cloak of darkness and Jesus covers us up and we will finally be revealed with him at the end and when that revelation occurs then everything is clear and we are revealed to be helpful there's a there's that word that keeps coming again and I, I alluded it to right here it's the idea that in verse 4 that we will be revealed you see the etymology of that now too right that reveal shares the same root as revelation. And what is a revelation? Is that, you know, when we think of it biblically, we think the revelation, we think of the end times, we think how everything will come to light. And in so then, you and I who live in relative spiritual obscurity are the beneficiaries of that because then our failures aren't brought to light. What is brought to light is our success at the end. And how are we successful? By intertwining our lives with Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 27, verse 5, the Lord will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me then on a high rock. And that's what happens in our lives, right? When we follow Jesus, when our lives are intertwined with him, we are blessed because we get to live in obscurity until we're finally revealed. Let's move on and see what else Paul writes about this. this is, we're going to have some fun right here. Brooklyn, if you will do us a favor and read verses 5 through 10, please. This is some great, great biblical stuff. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. 
Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So just at the beginning of this chapter, just at the beginning, Paul's like, look, you guys, you're a little too earthly. You need to think heavenly. And we're like, that's a good thing, right? I need to think about the grandiose, the bigger things, not what's happening in the present, right? And then Paul then shifts gears on us and goes immediately into, and this is what you, you, you heathen sinners need to clean out of your life, right? And you're like, wait a second, Paul. I liked verses 1 through 4 right here. 5 through 10 are giving me the heebie-jeebies because I do not appreciate being told what I can or cannot do. It's how we like to live. But recognize this is that they are, they, they are, are, are not opposed to each other, but they are also in tandem with each other because the heavenly connects with the here and now. The heavenly, when we keep our minds, our, our minds above, actually have repercussions on what we do even today. Now, some people love to critique Paul because of stuff like this. And they say, you know what? Paul was just this moralist. Paul just wanted to have people live a certain way to follow a certain pattern of actions, and that is what made them holy, and that's why I know we need to disqualify what he writes here. But recognize this, is that what Paul does consistently, and this is the message of not just Paul, but in the New Testament of all scriptures here, is that first and foremost, theology precedes discussion about behavior. So if you've had a conversation with somebody that is far from God about faith, and they're like, well, all Christianity is is a set of rules trying to tell me what I can't do and what makes me pious and a sinner, that's not the reality at all. Because, again, what we're going to see here, and I, I, I challenge you to hold with me past verse 10, because we'll get past this do not do these things list, but understand that it always works in ta- tandem with a broader view of God thought, right? Theology is, you know, literally translated, theos, God, ology, like psychology, all this stuff is just thought, wisdom. So uh, all this God, God thought precedes anything we're supposed to act. So what, what Jesus wants you to do is not just, you know, do, you know, again, I keep saying this phrase because just to let you know, my baggage came from uh, my, my uh, 10th grade physics teacher would say, you shouldn't drink or chew or go with girls who do. Right? Like, that's, that's this idea. That's how some people view faith. It's just that it's a thing that what I don't do. That is not what Christianity is. Because what Paul establishes right here in verses 1 through 4 is this idea. is like, look, because your lives are intertwined with Jesus, who you are is something different and profound and beautiful. And it's from that being then that you should behave in such a way. So that's what we need to understand. So instead of taking these to our pagan friends and saying like, hey, I was in church on Sunday and here's the list of things that you should not do, miss the point altogether. Because what true Christianity is, is understanding who God is and then showing then an appreciation of that, how we behave. I need to note this, by the way, in verse six, that might not be your life verse or, or one of your favorite memory verse, but you know, because of this, the wrath of God is coming. But recognize this, is that I don't take that out of context, too. But, but what Paul is basically trying to say there is there are expectations that God has upon you. And, you know, again, we understand that the wages of sin, as Paul writes in Romans, is death. That there are things to understand is that the wrath of God is part of his dualistic nature. He's paradoxical. He can be both and. He's allowed to be both wrath and grace. He does that better than anybody. So when Paul is trying to say this, is that recognize that if you are intertwined with Jesus, there are things that he does want you to change. 
So what we have is two different lists here, so take a look at them with me, if you will. Verse five is our first list, verse eight is our second list. I'm gonna offer you that verse five is, um, and by the way, these are called vice lists, so this isn't the only place in the New Testament that such a list occurs, but we'll have to see how they interplay. But verse five is basically, are basically sins of exploitation, and if you'll notice, they're more sexual in nature. Recognize this, is that the reason that we talk about that is God cares about it. Now understand, what at the root is wrong in these sins of exploitation? Why in verse 5 should we rid ourselves of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed? All these things are idolatrous. Why do we need to do that? We have to understand what's at stake right here. Because, again, our minds are to be on heavenly things. And God says there's a heavenly perspective to all these things I talked about. And most, most importantly is that what is issue behind sins of exploitation is that it is us using another's body to quench our obsession with self-gratification. I had to write that out, so I might just repeat it because I don't think I could give that uh, verbatim again. It is our use of another's body to quench our obsession with self-gratification. It is how we use people to feel good for ourselves. Okay, and again, this is why godly confines on sexuality are supposed to be mutually beneficial, not predatory. So, you know, in thinking about this week, I, I think that's a better definition if you understand verse 5, what really is at play right here. And coming from the past couple weeks, one of the most interesting things that I've seen culturally is the idea of all these predators being exposed, these Hollywood-based and sometimes political predators who are now losing their very careers because... They have lived lives of sexual conflict and have tried to exploit other people for their personal benefit. It's fascinating because we're in an era right now where all this is coming to light because now from social media and such, power is back to the individual. What are sins of exploitation? It is somebody using power and in this perspective sexually to get what they want at the expense of somebody else. So it should resonate to us why this is an apt vice list, why this is wrong, okay? The sin is found in the point where I am trying to use somebody else's body to, to, to gratify self. So we see how can that work in many different things, right? In, in illicit relationships to pornography, it all fits this bill. It's the idea that what we are looking to do is take advantage of somebody else and what Paul is saying, okay, and again, you're just like, well, that's Paul's problem. He's just a prude, and he's not a sexually free mind. No, recognize that he says that this is a theological issue, because what it does is it then keeps our mind away from things above earthly things, and it puts us as the center of the universe. What does Paul say these things are? He calls them idolatrous, right? What is an idol? That's setting something else up in God's stead, and that's what happens. So recognize this, is that if, if, if we are using sex in order to exploit other people's, then we are broken, we are doing it wrong, and, what, and, and, and just stick one more thing for this, okay? So is this the list then for the pagans? I mean, ultimately, is this God's ideal? Yes. But if I am leading with a Christianity that says, in order to do what Jesus wants, you have to have this sexual ethic, then I am mistaken. Because this is what follows a right view of God. Okay, so as much as everybody looks at the implications, you're like, wait, 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 wait. If I talk about the sins of exploitation broadly, then I'm trying to get these people to live the way of Jesus. It, you're, you're right. 
Like the first thing I have to do before I impose a list upon somebody is to let them understand who Jesus is because I can't expect them to, to, to rid these sins from their lives if they don't understand who Jesus is. And, and this is very important then. Those expectations ought to be higher for the people of God. So, so often I'm in the church and I see people who are like, you know, like, okay, well, you know, we need the pagans to live this way, but first we have to make sure our house is clean. And this is a whole litany of things, right? That sometimes the church has either condoned or turned a blind eye to. So we need to understand that they see sins of exploitations of which God finds horrendous and they need to be eliminated. Verse 8 is a whole other list. And I'm going to offer, is usually I think when people would speak and teach through this, is they probably focus on verse 5 because those are the seedier ones, you know, that's like you, you, you sex crazed people need to fix this. I think more so, verse 8 is the key vice list is here, and these are sins of abuse. Sins of abuse. Look at this then, right, in verse 8, is that you need to eliminate from yourself things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and we talked a little about filthy language last week. That's for everybody but me. But understand, too, that filthy language isn't just, you know, me dropping, you know, a potty word, everyone, but it's the idea of me speaking scandalously about somebody else. It's so fascinating, then, that we want to focus on the sins of exploitation only, and we see them as hierarchical, but the reality is, is I know so many followers of Jesus who struggle in verse 8 and who live lives in anger, rage, malice, and, and, and talking horribly about other people. Friends, that is incredible incredibly detrimental and is similarly, uh, similarly ranked in a place where the church needs to eliminate them. These things that I do trying to break down and destroy another. Why do I do these things? Because if I can make somebody else look less than me, then I am the spiritual giant. So by abusing them, by putting them in a more negative space, I'm trying to take what is left for myself. And friends, this is wrong. We are called as the people of God to view people as a reflection of being made in his image and to love them passionately. I will admit to you, I've had a, a pet peeve lately, and I even um, said something to, to Kaylin and my wife about it, but there's this thing lately where I've noticed, and this is maybe just an anecdote, and this is what happens when you preach. I'm trying to use this to illustrate. So it's not that this is a sin of abuse above all others, but I think it is one that has a reflection of what Paul is talking about right here. And I will go out to eat with people, and I will notice the way that they treat the wait staff. And when I see people that basically have a posture of, like, like superiority over a waiter or a waitress, it makes me just angry. If I'm with somebody like that, you know, it, it is an immediate judgment for me. And usually if I, I pick up the bill, I'm going to tip more just because I'm embarrassed by how other people act. Because here's the thing, is that, you know, the way that you treat a human that you do not need for your own desires or wants, I think is a great reflection of how you view humanity in so, so often, you know, how do I treat wait staff? It's like, well, they're there to do what I want them to do, and if they don't do it, I'm going to enact that on it. Yeah, we've had bad waiters and waitresses. We've all had that experience where the food is slow or something, but you just don't know where somebody is in that moment. And what I try to do is extend an extra grace because I wouldn't treat my wife or my daughter or my father, I wouldn't treat the people who beloved them around me in such a manner that sometimes I treat people that, that, that I believe that I am superior to. 
It's how we see our lives as being intertwined with Jesus. Can we see other people the way that God sees them? So just eliminate this junk from our lives. That's what, that's what being intertwined with Jesus is. It's, it's getting rid of this stuff from our lives. And I will say this then in verse 9 and 10 because this is what's interesting, you know, get beyond the, the don't lying to each other part and then see this. Is that why do we this? Because we have taken off our old self and put on the new self, okay? So it's because we're now with Jesus, we should switch who we are. We should try to work against our humanity that sees things only here and see things heavenly. We should act like now we are brand new human beings and purge this from our lives. All right, Brooklyn, here's the marathon of the morning, verses 11 through 17. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, such as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. If you are the type of people that mark up your Bible, just mark, mark this up. If you're the type of people who uh, highlight an uncertain app, highlight this app. I, I could spend an entire... You know, I could spend a lot, lot longer time just breaking all this down because this is rich. Yet most of it is common sense, and I think it speaks to us. So just do me a favor, you know, as an assignment this week or something like that, just really read this again at some other point in your week to just try to grapple with all <laughs> the robust beauty that Paul uh, unleashes here on us. Let, can I focus on a few things here? First thing is verse 11, which is a very, very key verse because what... Paul is saying right here then is because when you are intertwined with Christ, you are hidden. You, 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 are, you, you live in relative anonymity that nobody wants. Then what do you have to do is that you have to see the world the way that God sees it. And how does God see it? That there is no differential between human beings. It's weird that we're living in a day and era where this is like commonplace conversation culturally. You know, it's one of those things that those of us who have lived long enough, maybe some of us have seen racism firsthand, other ones have only maybe saw it in books, so now all the images of, you know, um, KKK and Nazi sympathizers in American streets were like, we, we can't even process what that is. But, but let's just be obviously clear, and we've preached about this before, it, it, just this concept is that when you are in Christ, then all the classifications are eliminated. And I think that's important even for some of us because in many religious structures, there are places where people are able to be um, elevated to higher levels. In some uh, Far Eastern beliefs, you know, there are, there are systems by which people are more important because of where they were born or who their lineage are. Even in a church like ours, a non-denominational Bible church, sometimes a pastor or an elder can have a position that's supposed to be higher. But we recognize that what Jesus is saying is that, or Paul is saying, is that in, in Christ's eyes, there is nothing in our social economic, our skin pigmentation, our, our background 
that makes us different is that it is accessible to all. That's why Christianity is beautiful when you look at the spread of religion. Only Buddhism is very similar in the idea that it is not necessarily geographically centered on that. And even Buddhism, what it does to adjust to that is it amalgamates into whatever belief system culturally is there. But what's crazy is that it's Sunday right here in the, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, in the Eastern time zone, and yet for the, the previous 12 hours today, there have been Christians all over the face of this earth coming together as we are doing and worshiping Jesus. Why is that? It's because in Christ, all are equal. So as we are the new creation, and as we are united with the image of God, and since Jesus is all that matters, and if we're truly intertwined with him, then we do not divide on artificial rubrics, friends. We, we must live life as if all are equal. Okay, so then, moving beyond that verse then, if we're all equal, how should we live? That's verse 12, okay? Because very interesting, if we saw in verses 5 through 10, we got a couple vice lists, right? These things that you should avoid, but what we have in verse 12 is a virtue list, the opposite of a vice list. And here, we're told to take on, and I love, again, this intertwined metaphor comes in fully right here because we're supposed to, what? Clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These are the things we should live by. And understand this then, in those vices, I'm using people toward my own end in virtues I'm setting myself to be lower so that they might be elevated. And that is how we ought to view the world in which we live, is recognize that I ought to not exploit people nor abuse people, but really I need to find virtues of compassion, patience. And then when we move down here to verse, I lost it, verse 14. What's the ultimate virtue that we put on? The ultimate virtue is love. This is something that Paul honks on a lot, right? First Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. What's his conclusion of this? If you take a look at faith, hope, and love, when these, things, these three remain, what is the chief virtue? It is love, and he repeats that right here. I dare say that if I live a life of love, when I see somebody else, and instead of harboring hatred, can really view them with lenses of love, then I will not fail in doing what Christ wants me to do. We need to love. And why? That's verses 15 through 17 right here. Verses 15 through 17 resonate when we even talked about communion. Why? For each other. You're part of a body. You're part of a group of people. And when you're in this group, you don't view anybody as if they're better than yourself. You practice good lifestyle virtue. Why? Because Verse, you know, because this virtue list, if I just do these things, then I will do what Jesus wants and he makes me happy. No, 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 no. I do this as a reflection of what Jesus did for me because my mind is on heavenly things. And when my mind's on heavenly things, then my actions are going to pour out of that. It is the fruit to the root of the tree, right? Why does Jesus win, friends? What Paul explains to us here at the beginning of chapter three is Jesus wins because he offers us perspective. Perspective. I dare say it's something that is so valuable to us that we don't think about. The, the ability to distinguish between near and far, to see where things line up. And what we are called to do then in gaining a good 
perspective on our lives is not just look at virtue lists and vice lists and do the good things and negate the bad things and then we are this, this, this brilliant spiritual person. No, it is us having lenses by which we can see reality. So what we are doing as we look forward is we are seeing today, but we are looking at today not in singularity, but in light of what it means in eternity. This is what Paul is talking about in all the beginning of chapter 3. For us to really set our minds on heavenly things, we need to see heaven through earth, through the here and now, to understand how that affects everything. And it's that perspective that makes Christianity and Jesus different than any other world faith. Yes, friends, you've seen it in your lives that sometimes there are people who focus far too much on eternity that they do no good today. If I only live for eternity, I'm ignoring treating others as Jesus would want me to treat them because that's what he did for me. But at the same time, if I'm only making today, if I'm only living for today to make sure that somebody's immediate needs are felt or that I'm just a kind person in the here and now, then I'll prioritize those needs over the eternal ones. So what we're called to do is have a solid perspective to be able to see in light of eternity. And again, maybe I should just pause for a sub-definition right here. The idea that eternity is forever, right? This idea that we see ending in this world all the time, whether it be through destruction or death, that this world isn't perfect, it's falling apart, but that eternity looms over all of this in Christ, that when I can see today, while I'm glancing through toward eternity, that I'm going to live a more fruitful life than when I'm focused on nearly the one. Yes, friends, I'm going to come through, is that that's why our God is brilliant because he is the God of the near and the far. Correct? That he understands that we are living in the here and now. In November of 2017. And yet, eternity will have no number on that. Yet we need to make sure that as our lives are intertwined with Christ, that our perspective is intertwined with truth. That he is the God the near and far. He discusses this through his prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Friends, we worship the God of the near and far. So what does that mean to us? How then do we live? Again, we need to live with both of them intertwined and recognizing what we are called to do as his followers. Eliminate the sins from our lives, right? The sins of exploitation, exploitation and abuse. To live virtuously, to show compassion on others, to use love as a rule for life with the understanding that these things in the here and now are really just projections of, of heaven and what God wants for all of his people in light of his existence. I think we're just called to love more and to appreciate the perspective. Why don't you do that this week?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, again, these words from Paul are incredibly challenging, so challenging, Lord, because um, maybe in the here and now we live in love, and that love is a temporal love. That's a love just not to offend. It's a a love that we don't want conflicts with people who are not your followers, so um, we kind of just take a pass. But Father, help us to truly view things from an eternal perspective, to project, uh, to lift our eyes toward heaven, and to see what you have in store with us there. And Father, before taking these uh, vices and browbeating others uh, with them, just will you help us to eliminate that ourselves? Father, for our sins of abuse and exploitation, we come to you today and we ask for forgiveness. We would ask that you help us live lives of virtue that reflect our love for you and our appreciation for your son Jesus. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.